I wanted to talk more broadly, though, uh, uh, about technology, technological society, and I won't dwell on this too long. I do feel indulgent when I do this, um, but I, I think it's an important part of it. And I, what I wrote down in my notes for this is that the body in the machine, right? And this is a very um, stark way of putting it, but I think it's a fair way of putting it, right? So what I want to capture in that, which I'll try to you know, flesh out, uh, no pun intended, uh, is truly, it's, it's that we are bodies, first of all, something that we might forget sometimes, as silly as it may sound to say that, uh, but that we, we live in a machine, right? I, and I'll, I, obviously I'm using that language to some degree metaphorically, um, but in a way that I think really actually becomes rather concrete, right? And so if I, if I step back and paint this picture as broadly as possible, um, what I would say is that our society is ordered in a way where the demands of the system are what is more important, and our job is to fit ourselves to the system, right? That's a very kind of 60s radical way of talking about the system or the man, but simply what I mean is it's a technological, economic, and those two things are always intertwined, uh, techno-economic structures of society. Um, even something as basic as, as time, right? So just get back to the very um, simple thing Chris mentioned earlier, right? How we experience time. Uh, and, and if you just think about the contrast between what we might think of as a, a phenomenological experience of time, right? Which is just a, a, a fancy way of saying that you experience time directly by the rising of the sun, its course across the sky, its setting, the nighttime hours, um, the phases of the moon, the seasons, right? There's this kind of phenomenological way of, of experiencing the rhythms of time. And, and the temporal rhythms, right, are, are set by, natural is a contested word, but I'll just use it because it's easy, right? So the, these natural rhythms. Um, the clock is absolutely artificial, right? But it's the default way we experience time. So, and, and it's, it's, it, again, there's always a sense of, this is sort of the way you have to do it, right? If I wanted to do this with you all today, I had to tell you, <laughs> be here at 8.30, right? I, I couldn't use something like, you know, um, I don't know, in the third hour of the morning or, uh, you know, after the sun has been up for, I, it, there's, there was no other way, right, of coordinating people to make it together. But again, if we, if we have had experiences in other cultures, we know that this is not a default way of doing things, right? Mm -hmm. and, and we may, as Westerners, be very frustrated by the fact that, um, you know, meetings are arranged on a when you get there, get there basis, and that people are sort of okay with this uh, in, in other so social milieus, right? Um, but we get very anxious if we're running late, if we're running behind. Um, and again, I don't think, a moment ago I said, I don't think that we think enough about the, you know, how, how new the smartphone is and how it, it changes the, di you know, the texture of everyday life. Uh, I'm almost tempted to say we forget about the artificiality of mechanical time, right? Um, that it, it is a relatively novel thing given the whole scope of human history that people say, I'll see you at 115, because the word one, you know, the category 115 simply would not have made sense without the tools to measure time in that way, right? So, and, and our society is ordered by that time, right? It has to be, to, to coordinate economic activity, social activity, you, you have to order yourself by that time. Now, this may seem like an entirely benign thing, we hardly even think about it, uh, but, but again, what I would suggest is part of this picture where there's this 
larger social reality, the social milieu, this technical system that operates on its own terms and whether it is better for us or not, we need to conform to it, right? We need to conform to it. Um, and so I want to draw your attention. I'll, I'll, I pulled out a couple of um, passages here from two of my sort of go-to uh, technological critics, uh, philosophers of technology. Um, although very briefly, there's a very quick line. Um, you don't even have to turn, just get, get to Illich in a moment. But right? there's a line but the anthropologist, contemporary anthropologist Shannon Mattern, in a talk she gave called Times Interfaces, where she explores the various ways that we have of um, recording and, and, and re showing time and how, you know, the difference they make. But she makes a passing observation, our phones seemed to be contrived for circadian contradiction, all right? In other words, our, our phones seem uniquely built to contradict the circadian rhythms of our body. Right? So that, and that goes back to the body. Right? You have a body. Your body has rhythms. Those rhythms, uh, and well, let me you know, show my cards, of course. My, my default in thinking about all of this is that God made us as embodied creatures and that that is good. Right? That as a Christian, the body, I affirm the body is fundamentally good. Right? It's not the prison house of the soul. It's not something that I long to escape from in the afterlife. Uh, it is literally good by creation, sanctified by the incarnation, and it is our hope to be reunited to our body in the afterlife. Right? So this is, the body is, is essential. Uh, and then that the material world, the realm of creation is good. Right? It, now, of course, uh, this is all Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 3 introduces profound complications, but that, that fundamentally the relationship between body and world ought to be one of, of harmony, right? There ought to be a certain sync between the body we have been given and the world that was created as its home, right? Um, as its temporal home in this life. And so part of what I've think is going on with our restlessness, our inability to, to find a sense of rest, it, it owes to that dynamic, to the dynamic that we have created a techno-social milieu which fundamentally disrupts whatever harmony or sync-up there may have been between the world that God made and the body that we were given to live in it. Right? And so that the, the natural has been altogether eclipsed by the artificial. Now, I always feel compelled to make some caveats here. We were not destined to live in a garden, right? There's this garden to city trajectory in scripture, which we affirm. Um, human beings were, were always going to be creative in some respect, and, and, and um, you know, technical enterprise is part of that. So this is not sort of an anti-technological observation. Uh, it is about the kind of technological world that we have made and whether it works with the grain of, of the universe, to borrow a, a line from a, a lecture by Stanley Hauerwas, right? Are we building a world where, where it works with the grain of the universe or runs against it, all right? Uh, and I would suggest that the modern world, modernity as we know it, um, runs against the grain, right, of, of the universe, the moral law that is embedded into the world that God has made and, and written even into our bodies. 
Um, there are lots of ways in which this manifests itself. Uh, lately, I've thought a lot about how the heavens, which declare the glory of God, have fallen silent because we cannot see them. Right? You simply cannot see them. Um, there, you know, a lot. My favorite anecdote about this is in the late '70s. You may have heard this. Uh, there was a blackout in Los Angeles, uh, and hundreds of people called 911 to report this strange white milky glow <laughs> in the sky, which was the Milky Way, which they had never seen before and could not even discern what that was, right? Um, and, and honestly, I can count on less than one, the fingers of one hand, how many times I have seen the full starry sky, right? Um, I, there's a, various places online we could go to find uh, dark sky maps. Uh, and there's actually, if you go down to Cedar Key and in that area, it's one of the few pockets left uh, where in our area, in our you know, driving distance, you, could, you can see a dark sky, uh, a genuinely dark sky. But this is not just an observation, a kind of romantic observation about, oh, we can't see the stars anymore. Um, I actually think it has profound moral and theological consequences, right? Uh, if, in fact, as most of us, I think, would affirm, you know, God speaks to us both through natural revelation and special revelation, part of what I am suggesting here is that we can't read natural revelation anymore. Right? That, book of, that book by which God speaks to us has, has in many ways not fallen silent, it continues to speak, but it has been muted by the structures of contemporary life in modern society. And, and again, one of my most obvious ways of pointing to that is our inability to see the stars. Um, that you know, the, we can't imagine the psalmist writing the heavens declare the glory of God living in an urban 20th century, 21st century setting. All right. um, that's one example of that. The circadian point that Peterson makes there, right? That we, there is no rhythm to our waking and our, and our sleeping, right? I mean, if you have it, wonderful, right? So I, when I say the generic we here, you know, count yourself in if it applies. If not, give yourself a pass, right? But um, the sun does not set our rising and our, and our, and our going to, to bed in any way. Um, we can be up at 2 a.m. in the morning, doom scrolling through our feeds by the you know, backlit light of our cell phones, uh, which are you know, emitting lights that react with our bodies in such a way that it makes it more difficult for us to fall asleep. Um, and, and there is no, again, this is a matter of boundaries and rhythms um, that would have been to some degree default function of rhythms that would have just seemed natural and right and good. So I think this is part of, of, the, of the equation, right? That there was, there was something good to this order and that it would be right for us to try to live by it in some way. There are obviously centuries worth of debate about the natural law and its meaning and its application, et cetera, and I don't want to just kind of wash over all of that. Uh, but that, that fundamentally there was a way of relating to these natural rhythms that would have been perhaps better for us, but that we don't, we're not even aware of them anymore. Um, and that there's a, a machine that is operating. Our society operates like a kind of global machine now. We see it breaking. So it's, you become aware of it when it breaks down, when container ships are strung out on the Pacific Ocean 
we suddenly become aware of this machine that is constantly buzzing, right? This remarkable global machine that has countless complex parts, chiefly driven by economic engines, right? Uh, and that we serve it. It does not serve us. There are good reasons to be suspicious of the way in which the present economic order structures our lives, right? Um, and that's a very, at the very tamest level of what I could say. Uh, but, but part of it uh, is not only because of the inequalities that it generates, severe and important as those may be, but because even for the people who do well in it, it is not good for them on this reading, right? Um, and so I'll read you a couple of, um, of striking, what I think are striking paragraphs here. Uh, Illich is so uh, good, I think, right? He's bracing. Uh, he was um, a Roman Catholic priest and a, a social critic. If you've heard the name at all, it's maybe because of his book, Deschooling Society, uh, which came out in the early 70s. This is another little book that he wrote called um, Tools for Conviviality. So just bear with me. I'm just going to read a couple of chunks here. So the first one right below the circadian rhythm quote. The present world is divided into those who do not have enough and those who have more than enough. Those who are pushed off the road by cars and those who drive them. Uh, Illich spoke in a prophetic style, right? So obviously, often very stark formulations. The have-nots are miserable and the rich anxious to get more. A society whose members know what is enough might be poor, but its members would be equally free. Men with industrially distorted minds cannot grasp the rich texture of personal accomplishments within the range of modern, though limited, tools. There is no room in their imagination for the qualitative change that the acceptance of a steady, stable state industry would mean a society in which members are free from most of the multiple restraints of schedules and therapies now imposed for the sake of growing tools. Much less do most of our contemporaries experience the sober joy of life in this voluntary, though relative, poverty which lies within our grasp. Okay, so part of what Illich does for me is that he questions. So I think we all, we all have these, this understanding that uh, we're in the world, but not of it, right? So there are going to be things about the world that we will need to identify and negotiate or resist because they run counter to Christian moral formation, right, to the demands of the gospel. And I think that a lot of us can maybe sort of rattle off a few of those off the top of our heads, right, the easy targets where we know, right, we, we, we're not necessarily susceptible to them, we may experience them as temptations to some degree, but the fact that they appear as temptations already tells us that the Christian moral lens is working because they, they appear as such to us, right? The real danger, of course, are all the things that don't register in that way, but that nonetheless constitute the patterns of this world which run counter to the demands of the gospel and um, the requirements of Christian moral formation, right? So I grew up in a fundamentalist context. It's a very easy target now, right? So. Uh, the, the patterns of this world in that context were, as silly as it now seems, don't drink, don't go to movies, women don't wear skirts, or excuse me, pants, they do wear skirts, they don't wear pants, you don't dance, uh, and you don't curse, and you don't have premarital sex, right? So, 
did I mention smoking? No smoking, right? So you don't <laughs> do any of those things, and that, those are the patterns of the world. Avoid those, right? And then you're not being conformed to this world. We may have a slightly different um, set of, of things. We might you know, not have quite the same configured, but maybe we have something very much like that. Uh, but I would still say that underlying, uh, there are underlying assumptions that still have not appeared to us as temptations because we haven't seen them as such. They, 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 we, we give ourselves to them. And, and part of the value of Village for me personally is that he brings these right up and says there are these things that you take for granted as actually even good things, but let's think about that for a moment. Um, at the, at the, what I think is sort of maybe for many people the extreme end, it's schooling, right? So uh, I've been a teacher for most of my adult life. Uh, Illich would say, you know what? Schooling's a problem. The way we do school, and not just the way, but the very fact of schooling in, in Western societies, bad institution. Uh, medicine, trouble, a lot of trouble in medicine. Uh, hospitals, bad institutions. And of course, we are thinking, even critics of modernity are going to say, schools and, and hospitals, <laughs> this is the good stuff, right? And Illich is saying, really? Let's think about that for a little bit. Uh, I won't go down those rabbit trails for you, but it's this idea of bringing to the fore things that we take for granted that maybe we ought not to. And so growth, that what, what Illich is targeting here is economic growth. Economic growth, of course, is the gospel of our society. Everything is ordered by the imperative of economic growth. Um, the shape that our technologies take, the rhythm of our lives, the decrees of our uh, elected officials, the, the, if you like, uh, if we want to be you know, prophetic about it, right, the, the golden calf is economic growth. And a lot of us, you know, I, I don't know your politics, uh, I don't know where you are on these sorts of questions, right, but for a lot of Christians, evangelical Christians in America, um, that's, yeah, of course, right, this is just the way it must be. Um, and, and it's good. It's not just, you know, a necessary evil, it's good. Uh, Illich here is asking us to consider whether or not we might not be happier, more fulfilled, more satisfied if our lives weren't constantly ordered by the demands of a, an economic engine set to permanent growth, right? Um, and, and he'll talk in other places about the, what the, that means for the environment, uh, what that means for our politics, but here it's just at that very fundamental level, right? Part of why we're tired is because we, I'll, I'll, I'll say this now, again, kind of weaving a lot of things together, but um, we have no purpose, right? I mean, societally, what do people live for? Right, if you do that thing where you sort of ask, why are you doing this? And you start with, maybe you're a college student. Why are you here? Well, to get this degree. Why are you getting this degree? To get this job. Why are you getting this job? You start doing that, what are you going to hit? I'm not entirely sure. Right? I mean, Aristotle would say you, you eventually hit, well, I think this will make me happy. Right? Um, but there is a, uh, a lack of telos, the lack of substantive ends. I have a couple of lines at the outset here that I skipped over. Um, and I'll go back to them. Philip Reef, um, in his book, The Triumph of the Therapeutic, you know, wrote, the end or goal is to keep going. That's it, right? Just keep going. 
Americans, as F. Scott Fitzgerald concluded, believe in the green light. Stephen Gardner commenting um, on Reef's work in an essay called The Eros and Ambitions of Psychological Man, said the fundamental law of psychological man, this was Reef's triumph of the therapeutic, right? So that psychological man is, is that ideal type that he theorizes in the mid-1960s. Um, prophetically, I think the fundamental law of psychological man is the law of temporization to, to keep things going in the absence of any definitive authoritative ends. Right, so if, if, if there is n no, I mean, this is Pascal, right? This is really, dovetails really nicely, right? Uh, what, are you, what are you doing things for? It's, the worst thing is to not be moving, right? You're not sure what you're going to move towards, right? But you're just going to keep moving. And that's what we need above all else. Because to, to stop moving is to recognize that we have no goals and to enter into despair. So he says, you know, the problem for psychological man is not finally that of the satisfaction of desire because he is conditioned and advanced by the knowledge that desire is inherently unsatisfiable, at least in any definitive classical or teleological sense. His problem, rather, is how to keep desiring in the face of that knowledge. His aim is how to postpone the inevitable, the end of desire. His greatest fear is Pascalian boredom, and the, the helpless feeling of not being able to desire, the loss of the power of distraction. The individual who is to survive in the modern world must become the genius of himself, the artist of his desires as the vital source, sources of his being. Now, I realize it's dense. We've got a lot of things going on there, right? But, but the fundamental point that I want to bring into where we were is that we are, I think, an inherently purposeless society. And in that context, all that one can do to stave off despair is just keep doing things, right? Stay active, keep moving, keep pursuing something uh, as if it mattered. And the, the economic engine, right, the economic structures of our life, uh, abetted by, by technological structures, certainly make that just the default setting that most of us live our lives in. Um, what Illich wants to do, I think, is just question the whole thing. Uh, and, and, and ask, what if we just imagine a society not ordered around economic growth? What would that look like? Would that be good? Would that be better? I always hear, um, you know, Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, which is such a great novel, which is like the least thing it's about is censorship. But um, it, it's the protagonist's journey gets kicked off with this question by a young girl that he meets, are you happy? Just a very simple question. Are you happy? Right? And, I, and I, I feel like that's such a good question because we are, you know, we live these lives just full of recreations and amusements and diversions and devices and uh, all, all these things that crowd our lives for those of us that are fluent enough to enjoy them. Uh, and I, I do wonder, right, if we just get asked, are you happy? What the answer is, right? What the answer is for our students. Um, and, and if the answer is no, right, it's just, it's such an inviting diagnostic question, okay? Well, why is that? And again, I think uh, the Christian is tempted to say, oh, do you have Jesus, right? The, of course Jesus is the answer, and of course Jesus is the answer, right? But as Richard said, all of us struggle with this, right? Even if we, um, you know, assent to the fact that Jesus is the answer, uh, so, because we're conditioned, 
We've been conditioned. We don't escape that. Even us who are in ministry, I mean, you know this. I don't need to tell you this, right? Um, we are not above the default cultural structures of, of moral and intellectual formation, right? And so we may have to fight it really hard, and sometimes we don't even know what it is that we need to fight against. Uh, and I think that this, this, the idol of economic growth does a lot of work in understanding, helping us understand why we always feel compelled to do more, uh, to have more, uh, to make more. Right. Now, it's a, it's, a, it's a wide system. So let me read you one more paragraph here. The, the demands made by, now tools, Illich, I should say, means not just you know, devices. He includes institutions, uh, schooling, education, for example, uh, modern medicine, modern transportation, these, these cultural institutions. He thinks of them as tools as well. The demands made by tools on people become increasingly costly. The rising cost, and, and here's the key idea, I think, for my purposes. The rising cost of fitting man to the service of his tools is reflected in the ongoing shift from goods to services in overall production, as he's writing in the 1970s. Increasing manipulation of man becomes necessary to overcome the resistance of his vital equilibrium to the dynamic of growing industries. It takes the form of educational, medical, and administrative therapies. Education turns out competitive consumers. Medicine keeps them alive in the engineered environment that they have come to require. Bureaucracy reflects the necessity of exercising social control over people who do meaningless work. The parallel increase in the cost of the defense of new levels of privilege through military, police, and insurance measures reflects the fact that in a consumer society, there are inevitably two kinds of slaves, the prisoners of addiction and the prisoners of envy. I'm just going to leave this here, right? This is the gesture that I want to make. I just want to leave this here. And then I just feel like saying, I don't know, you tell me, <laughs> right? Uh, and it, as a, uh, it's, I've never stopped seeing that ever since, right? So all the things we think are good, in some respects, are there because we need them to fit us to a society that is basically unresponsive to our fundamental needs as human beings, as embodied creatures, and thus we have to create a whole system of therapies to help us be cogs in that machine, to use a rather old metaphor. And I want to say, are we tired? Of course we're tired. Of course we're tired. Because we're living in a world that is not built for us. Right? We're living in a world that asks us to conform to its rhythms and its logic and its demands. Uh, and it is fundamentally inhumane. Not in all respects, not in every way, but in enough ways, often tacit ways, that it, it has a cost. All right. Um, Ilul, Jacques Ilul, another uh, brilliant 20th century critic, both Christians. Um, he's very good on this as well. So I'll skip a paragraph. Um, you know, he says, at the same time, one should not forget that human beings are themselves already modified by the technical phenomena. When infants are born, the environments in which they find themselves is technique. This is Ilul's word for how we turn every, every aspect of our lives gets turned into a technique aimed at maximizing efficiency, optimizing, we might say today. 
The environment in which they find themselves is technique, which is a given. Their whole education is oriented toward adaptation to the conditions of technique. He gives as a trivial example, learning how to cross streets at traffic lights. I, I mean, just think of that, just, again, because it's, I know that may sound like the stupidest thing. Of course you learn to cross. But think about what is happening, right? We've built an environment where people cannot simply walk. You just can't, right? I used to live in Orlando. Orlando had one of the highest uh, rates of uh, pedestrian fatalities in the country. I think the highest. Um, it's just not safe to walk. Okay, think of hundreds of thousands of years of human history and culture, and then think of that, right? You, you, cannot, you cannot walk if you wanted to, right? Um, it, you need an automobile, right? I, I mean, some cities are better than others at public transportation, uh, but the fundamental reality is a child cannot just be allowed to walk in the city. They must be taught to be responsive to the system that we have created to manage safety in a context where one-ton, two-ton vehicles careen at extreme speeds through you know, our homes and sidewalks and whatnot, right? So in a sense, this is, I, I, I don't know how this sounds to you, right? I don't know if you're saying, well, yeah, so what, right? But I, I, I want to sort of share a little bit of the kind of that shock of recognition that I experienced when, when I realized that's, yeah, that's kind of perverse, isn't it? Um, uh, Illich has this you know, wonderful uh, anecdote. He, he traveled extensively through South America. He lived in, in Cuernavaca, Mexico for many, many years. Um, and he, he talks about how, you know, there's a peasant sitting by the side of the road one time. He get, gets run over by a car. Uh, and somebody else is telling him about this and he says, well, he shouldn't have been there. And, and the, this, the, the shock of that, right? Like, well, it's his fault for not adapting, all right? Um, again, I think, okay, maybe, maybe he shouldn't have been there. But, but that, the dynamic is, the human being must conform to the overall system, I think, is what's important there. Um, Illol goes on to say, uh, and their instruction, that is, the children, the whole education oriented to adaptation to the conditions of technique, and their instruction is destined to prepare them for entrance into some technical employment. Human beings are psychologically modified by consumption, by technical work, by news, by television, by leisure activities, currently the proliferation of computer games, etc., all of which are techniques. In other words, it must not be forgotten that it is this very humanity which has been pre-adapted to and modified by technique that is supposed to master and reorient technique. It is obvious that this will not be able to be done with any independence. Now, part of what he wants to say is um, it's very difficult to turn the ship around at this point, right? in part because all of this is just default for us now. Um, and we can't even imagine, it's hard for us to even imagine an alternative, an alternative way of living. But that what we are dealing with, and I think, I mean, I'm, I'm, I realize this is, this is not just something I can just say, of course this is true. You, you may have um, you know, good reasons for, for seeing it otherwise. But that the overall reality is that we have built a society that is unresponsive to our needs as humans, right? Uh, to our human needs, uh, and that we are made to fit to it, and that this is profoundly um, unsettling psychologically, physically, emotionally, right? That at, at every one of these levels, uh, we do not live in a way that is conducive to human flourishing. Uh, and that has nothing to do with whether we're doing bad, immoral, or good things, right? It's just baked into the fabric of modern society. Um, and so the question, you know, so that's why Illich wants us to just raise these very, very fundamental questions. 
Is it good? Could we do otherwise? What would it take to do otherwise? What kind of radical sacrifice might be required, et cetera, et cetera? Um, I, I'll read the, the last Illich quote for you here. I believe that a desirable future depends on our deliberately choosing a life of action over a life of consumption. I've been thinking about this late. I'm guilty of sin, guiltier, right, um, in this regard, right? So I, I do not want you to, to at all hear me as someone who has sort of gotten this right uh, and, and is sort of lecturing you about it. I, I promise I'm lecturing myself about it. Um, but that, that we might choose a life of action over a life of consumption. Um, there's a, you all know the Avid Brothers, a great band. If you don't know the Avid Brothers, I'd recommend the Avid Brothers. Right? It's just my little, um, but that was a wonderful song called Ill With Want, Ill With Want. Um, and that's a, a profound statement, right? We are sick with wanting. Um, and it's of course because we're wanting the wrong things. Right, or that you know we've mis, you know, uh, disordered our wanting, our desiring, very Augustinian. Um, but that that we have bought to what degree have we bought into the consumption that we all sort of say we don't like? Right, I think we're all very quick to critique consumerism, but how how deeply? Right, how deeply? Um, so life of action over life of consumption, on our engendering a life style which will enable us to be spontaneous, independent, yet related to each other, rather than maintaining a lifestyle which only allows us to make and unmake, produce and consume, a style of life which is merely a way station on the road to the depletion and pollution of the environment. 1973. The future depends more upon our choice of institutions which support a life of action than our developing new ideolo ideologies and technologies. Um, and I think of that and I think, yeah, uh, I live to buy stuff, right? I just do. Uh, and everything about, again, this, everything about the system has made that very, very easy. Um, you know, I was recently reflecting on uh, blue laws. So I had this one funny moment a few years ago. I went to a Publix to get um, diapers at 8 a.m. in the morning, I think. It was very early, crisis. Um, and I, Guinness was on sale, buy one, get one free. Okay, so, all right, I'll do that. You know, diapers, Guinness, doom. And uh, the lady said, oh, yeah, you can't buy those yet. What? Vestige of a blue law, right? You cannot buy alcohol uh, before 12, 12, I think noon, is that right? Some of you know, yeah, right? And then of course, I think everybody in the room is old enough to remember there was a time where it wasn't just Chick-fil-A that was closed on Sunday. Um, and a lot of stores closed at nine. I was telling Richard today, I remember uh, when I was enjoying his rant about Disney World, I remember um, coming to Disney World, uh, my, uh, I was probably, I mean, I don't know, it was probably 1982, 1983, thereabouts, uh, and we, we got to, a hotel and I drive a little dive, like a day's in or something, and my parents couldn't find a place to eat. Can you imagine that? In contemporary Orlando, nine o'clock at night, you can't find a place to eat? Everything was closed. Um, what, what all of that signaled, of course, were, was this idea that there are limits to economic life. There are limits to production, there are limits to consumption. Um, I was struck recently um, uh, reading through Pilgrim's Progress 
that the most violent episode, I think, in that book, the most violent episode happens in Vanity Fair. Remember this? Right? It's in Vanity Fair where Faithful is martyred. Uh, and, and why? What is the crime? You know, pilgrim, or Christian is beaten. Uh, he escapes. Faithful is beaten and martyred. Uh, and the crime? They would not buy. They would not buy. Right? Uh, he, uh, the way Faithful says it when he's defending himself, you know, my only crime is that I would buy nothing but truth. They would not buy. Um, and that's the power of that, right, written in the 17th century to now struck me. Um, and, and that there were, e that even as late as the late 20th century, there were these culturally approved demarcations, right, these places where you say Sundays were closed. Sunday evenings were closed. There are times when you can't buy alcohol, right? That there, are the, there were these, these limits that are completely gone, all right? Um, and that, again, the technical system has made this possible. I don't know. You want, name your item of desire at 2 a.m. in the morning, it's there, and it's there the next day. Uh, and if it can't get there the next day, don't worry. Amazon is working on it. The drone will drop it off shortly. All right, um, it, is, it, is, it is this engine, and um, I mean, I hate to be prudish about it, right, but this is bad for our souls. And I think it's part of the reason why we can't find rest, because we give ourselves to this, right? We give ourselves to this. Um, and and we f at, at some level, we must feel that it will make us happy, right? At some level, we must feel like, yeah, okay, this will do it. Um, however much we might kind of doubt it or have some res reservations about it, we do it. Um, and, I, and what Illich is calling us to is this idea that, you know what, you're going to be happier. His other point, right, that all these institutions, they de-skill you. Things that you would have supplied for yourself and for others, we now outsource to an institution. Um, and there are lots of ways in which I think that critique hits. Uh, but the point is, you know, we can't do anything for one another, uh, hardly anything. Um, and that there, there would have been satisfaction in that that we are atomized individuals that live for the satisfaction of their own consumer desires. We don't even know how to do community anymore. Community turns into a kind of commodity, right? The genius of the system is that everything can be a commodity. Um, everything can be a service uh, that you buy. Um, the stars that you can't see, not to worry. Uh, dark sky tourism. You, if you have enough money, there will there are you know, tourist services that will take you to those places and they will be, you know, you'll get that experience. But, but it's not now the, um, the natural inheritance of human beings by virtue of being God's creatures on God's earth. It is now the privilege of those who have the luxury to afford it. Right? Um, so this is, uh, I think, in large measure, a good reason why we find it so difficult to find rest as a state of being. Because I think the point, of course, in all of this is that uh, rest, and, and I give you some lines from Joseph Pieper there, uh, Leisure of the Basis of Culture is a classic book from the 20th century, it's very good. Um, for leisure, just mean, you know, read rest. Um, but he says, you know, leisure, it must be clearly understood, is a mental and spiritual attitude. And I think this is the point at the end of the day. It's not that we need times to rest. We need that. Fine. It's that rest is a, is a way of being in the world that ought to characterize everything we do. 
and that we just can't get there. And this is why I have that line from Jesus at the outset, right? Be anxious for nothing. Right? It's the opposite. We're anxious about everything. Um, I made the observation, uh, there's at least one New Testament scholar in the room, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the, um, the Gospels never portray Jesus hurried. Right? Never portray, I mean, you're all pastors, right? You read the Bible a lot. Um, you, and, and of course, the one striking example that may come immediately to your mind is that that one moment where he ought to have hurried, he decidedly did not, right? When his friend was ill. Jesus is never hurried in the Gospels. Um, and he is able to say, take no thought for tomorrow, right? Uh, I suspect that in, uh, of course, as in every other way, this is the model, right? This is the mod. This this is right. If Jesus is the the human being par excellence, um, there you have it. Right? How can we live so as not to feel perpetually rushed, agitated, restless, anxious? That's what it means to inhabit rest as a as a way of life, right? As a as a way of being in the world, and not merely as a thing we occasionally manage to do for ourselves because we can't go any further physically. Right?